Well, hey guys, welcome to another episode of, I guess, episode you want to say of California Haunts radio, just kind of a vlog actually. But anyway, here, here I am, and uh, we have a great guest lined up for you tonight. It's kind of a change of pace from the paranormal in that it kind of hits close to home for me because my father um, was of the age that he was in World War II, he was in the U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, walked a bit, and he was on patrol of the beaches in North Carolina, North and South Carolina. And this gentleman, uh, Steve Snyder, has written a book about his father, who was a um, aviator during World War II, and he was he was shot down. And, I, and Mr. Snyder started doing research on uh, what happened, and he ended up getting a ton of information enough to write a book. So we're going to bring Steve in. Um, we are the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at www.californiahaunts.org. We welcome you guys, and let's get Steve on. Hello. Hi there. How you How doing? Are you? I'm good. I'm, really I'm doing good. great. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited to have you on. Oh, I appreciate it. It's good to be on. Fabulous. My dad um, wasn't. My, my dad also participated in World War II. He was in the U.S. Coast Guard, and um, most of his stuff was stateside. He, he was patrolling the beaches in uh, North Carolina, in South Carolina, okay. Kitty okay. Hawk area, that, that area. And then he, he was on sub, uh, submarine patrol on the beaches. Everyone did their did. everyone did their job, their duty. Everyone pitched in. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I was born in Pasadena, California, um, raised in uh, that area. I went to college at UCLA, uh, graduated with an economics degree, and then I went in and had a 40-year career in sales and sales management. Uh, the last 36 was with a company called uh, Vision Service Plan, VSP, which provides vision care as an employee benefit to cover eye exam, glasses, contact lenses. And then uh, I retired in 2009. And that's when I had the time to really delve into my dad's war history in more detail. I knew the basics growing up. I knew he was a B-17 uh, bomber pilot. He was stationed in England with the 8th Air Force, flew bombing missions over uh, occupied Europe. And in 1944, February of 44, he was shot down and missing in action for seven months. But he evaded wow. capture and got back home. So, that is uh, something. And that's when I started my my research and all this. It was I was just a, a retiree, uh, kind of taking it easy, and all of a sudden I wrote a book and had a new career. <laughs> well, tell me about the what, what what you know. You, I know you want you got into doing research. Was there something that that drove you to do that research, or were you just curious about knowing more about what happened? Uh, good question. Uh, yeah, my parents had kept a lot of material from the war years, and I would just wanted to go through that and, and learn more. At that time, I had no intention of writing a book whatsoever. But there were two items that were really significant. One was a diary that my dad wrote while he was uh, missing in action about his plane being shot down, which is absolutely riveting. It's in the book. And the other were all these letters that my dad wrote to my mother while he was stationed in England before he got shot down. <clears throat> which he kept. And one day I just sat down and went through all these letters and I just became fascinated because my dad was really candid. And when he wrote in those letters, he talked about what bombing missions were like in, uh, <clears throat> and uh, over Europe, what life was like in the air base, what life was like in London and England at the time, escapades of uh, him and his crew. And uh, so it just became my passion. And I started doing all this research going on the internet, spending countless hours doing research. 
uh, contacting relatives of his, of his crew members to see if they could provide me with any information. I read book after book about the air war over Europe, uh, joined a number of World War II organizations, went to reunions, listened to veterans tell their stories. And finally, three years into my research, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique and so compelling that it needed to be told, need, people needed to know about it. So I decided to write a book. Interesting. And I, I was doing some, I, I didn't read your book yet, but I am going to. It's, it's downloaded today for me to sit down and read because I'm fascinated with that stuff. Thank and you. And I noticed that you had started to attend reunions of, of, of the people that he had served with. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, I belong to uh, a number of organizations. Like I said, I'm past president and I'm still a board member of the 306 Bomb Group Historical Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, the 8th Air Force was stationed in England, and at its peak, they had about 40 different bomb groups. And my dad was in the 306 bomb group, so that's what I'm associated with. But uh, I'm associated with a number of other uh, Air Force and World War II organizations as well. That's interesting. Was it hard to do the research? Or, or is that stuff declassified by now? Or how did you go about doing that? Well, actually, it was unbelievably easy. And I am so lucky and so fortunate and so blessed to know so much about my dad and his crew. Because, you know, most World War II vets didn't talk about the war. And so most relatives of World War II veterans, whether it's a son or daughter or a nephew or a cousin, what have you, know very little. Um, but, you know, based on the firsthand testimony from my dad, uh, from other crew members that survived, uh, B-17 had a 10-man crew. Five of them came back home and five of them didn't. And uh, interviews and testimonies by members of the Belgium underground. Mm -hmm. And then all the military documents have been declassified. So uh, bomb group diaries, admission reports, war crimes reports. And then the amazing thing is that I found the German Luftwaffe pilot that shot my dad down and Interview, wow. interviewed him for the book. So I just had a wealth of information. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. For people that aren't aware of your dad's story, kind of fill people in. I mean, obviously they know that he was shot down, but kind of, kind of, you know, kind of fill them in. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> it was on February 8th of 1944 on a mission to Frankfurt, Germany, where uh, his plane dropped the bomb successfully, but their bomb bay doors got hit by anti-aircraft fire, flak, what, what they called it. Flak was the abbreviation for the German word for aircraft defense cannon. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, you know, they couldn't get the Bombay doors back up. And then that caused a drag on the plane. They started losing airspeed and they fell behind the formation of E-17 bombers heading back to their bases in England. And they were subsequently, you know, kind of singled out by two German uh, fighter planes who came in for the kill. And in the ensuing air battle, the Susan Ruth, my dad's plane was called the Susan Ruth. He, he named it after my oldest sister. who was one year old at the time that he went overseas. Uh, it was shot down. And uh, two of the 10 crew members were killed in the plane. The other eight crew members were successfully bailed out. And uh, but both those German fighters were shot down. Uh, one piloted by Siegfried Merrick uh, crashed and he was killed in the plane, but the other one was piloted by Hans Berger, who bailed, was successfully bailed out and uh, he made it through the war. And uh, he was the German pilot that got credit for my dad's plane being shot down. And I, I found him and interviewed him for the book. He gave me wonderful information that... Uh, what it was like to go against the 8th Air Force that's in the book. And actually, Hans Berger's the only uh, person in the shot down story who's still living. All my dad's crew, my father and his crew, uh, all the Belgium helpers that risked their lives trying to help them are all uh, deceased. But uh, Hans is 97 years old now. He just wow. had his 97th birthday a couple of weeks ago. Lives in Munich, Germany. And fortunately for me, became a translator after the war. So he mm -hmm. speaks perfect English. I was really lucky. Absolutely. That's what a lot of people don't realize is, is these, uh, 
World War II veterans, I hate to say, are a dying breed, but they are. There's not many of them left. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, also, they were there were 16 million World War II veterans when the war ended. And today there's less than 3% of those men. And they're dying at, uh, at an amazing rate because they're all in their you know mid to late 90s. Right. And they're, they're, it's so, you know, in, in five years or so, all those men will be gone. Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And it's great that there's people like you and myself out there that, that want to get these stories out because the, this, the true stories of what actually happened, not what they're slapping together in some history book or some candied up thing. Yeah, like that, I mentioned, the, the book is all based on firsthand testimony by the people who were involved in the events that took place. The only thing that I added was a lot of information and anecdotes about and surrounding the war, the 8th Air Force, the air war over Europe, to put it, the story in context and give it background. Mm -hmm. Interesting. What was it like? I mean, what, what, how long did it take you to research it? Well, from the time I started my research, the time I the book was published was four and a half years. So it it uh, it was it, it was it was it was quite a while, um, and you know when you I had I had no writing background at all or writing experience uh, as a you know I was a salesman and uh, sales management for forty years, but I always kind of liked to write, and uh, but the book's done uh, really well, and I think that's because of the story it's won over 25 book awards and it has a five-star review on uh, amazon so it's been very well received it's been very gratifying actually it's changed my life you know i was i retired in 2009 i just kind of was kicking back doing nothing and, and i decided to write a book and after the book was published now it started a new career i go all over the united states uh, attending air shows signing copies of the book i do lots of speaking making powerpoint presentations all sorts of organizations, you know, trying to keep the memory alive and to educate people about the significance and the sacrifice of what took place uh, during World War II. Absolutely. Have you gotten the chance to fly on, on one of the airplanes? Oh, yes. Uh, I've flown on a B-17 twice, and it's a thrill of a lifetime. It is. Uh, if, you know, those, those planes look big from the outside, but when you actually have the opportunity to, to climb inside of one, even if it's on the ground and not in the air, it's amazing how cramped they are. They were they were they were more cramped than a submarine, uh, and, and what they went through, uh, in uh, air combat, in fighting off the German fighters and the anti-aircraft fire. It, it, and at the time, those guys, uh, well, as I mentioned, the ten man uh, B seventeen had a ten man crew. Uh, they had four officers who were in their early twenties. And then six gunners who were in their teens, right out of high school. Wow. And it, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they're fighting a war halfway around the world, which is pretty incredible. That is incredible. I got the chance to fly on a B-17 and a B-29. Oh, great. A so Fifi? I, Did you yeah. fly on Fifi or Doc? Fifi. All right. Good for blast. you. Absolutely Good for blast. In fact, I yeah. got the, the, they opened up the... Um, the gunner thing, the, the, I'm trying to get the words, that they opened up the, the, the round, you know, the turret, uh, turret thing in the top. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to crawl oh, up turret. in there and take photos looking back. It was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. That was really cool. Really, really cool. I got this in the front, in the front turret as well. Um, the one that got me was the turret, the guy that had to squeeze it into that, that bottom turret. Yeah. The ball turret. Yeah. He couldn't have been very big. You had to be a little guy. Those yeah. those combat missions lasted uh, six to, to ten hours, and so the ball turret gunner had to climb in there, and basically you're in a fetal position for hours on end. So it was very uncomfortable. And then what people don't realize is those planes were not adjusted for atmosphere. Nothing. There was no heat. There was nothing on them. So those guys were freezing. They had to deal with you know with the oxygen level, you know, the pressure and everything. When they, Absolutely. When they yeah, because, uh, you know, when they got to above 10,000 feet, they had to go on oxygen or right. they'll pass out in a couple of minutes, die. And then, as you mentioned, it was minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero on those planes. So frostbite was a huge problem and lots of airmen 
and were hospitalized for lengthy periods of times with serious frostbite injuries. And one of my dad's uh, waist gunners was in the hospital for two months because he got frostbite injuries on, on one of the missions. Yeah, it was, it, it, you know, they, it was dangerous from the time they took off to the time they landed. And from reading different books about the era, I understand like, like when they're in the air, they're not guarded all the time. It's just them, you know, from time to time, it's, it's just a, it's just this air squadron going, you know, the bombers. And then eventually the fighter jets, you know, come, not fighter jets back then, but you know what I mean? The, the fighters would join them, you know, yeah. and they just disappear <laughs> after a while. It's kind of, that would be unnerving. Yeah, the the, uh, the first mission for the 8th Air Force uh, was on August 17th of 1942. And they really didn't have fighter support. Well, they had minor fighter support at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the planes at that time didn't have the fuel capacity to escort the bombers all the way deep into Germany right. and escort them back. They could go across the English Channel. And then once they got, you know, you know, into France a little bit, they'd have to turn around. But then the the German Luftwaffe, the the Air Force, would just wait for the the escort fighters to return. Then they just swoop in for the kill. It wasn't until the beginning of 1944, when with the introduction of the P-51 Mustang and external fuel tanks added right. onto the P-47 Thunderbolts, that the right. bomber right. formations finally had fighter escorts that could take them deep into Germany, all the way to the target, and then bring them back home. Yeah, so yeah, that, in the early years of the war, uh, the Eighth the Air Force took devastating losses. In 1943, the average number of missions flown before being shot down was six. So your life expectancy wasn't very, wasn't too long. No, and how many, um, how many stories would, would, did they fly in, in, you know, you know what I mean? Because I remember watching the Memphis Bell, that movie Memphis Bell, right? And they only flew like, yeah. like what was it, 35 sorties? And they were done? Well, at the beginning, when they first started flying, there was no mission limit. Okay. But then the 8th Air Force, you know, the, the, they, if the, the, the morale of these air crews was going into the tank because they knew they'd never make it back home. They would die, uh, be killed, or either be shot down and become prisoners of war. So in the spring of 1943, they put in a mission limit of 25. Okay. 25 missions, 25. you could come back home. But again... In 1943, the average number of missions flown was only six. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when the uh, the fighter escorts started coming in and basically decimating the German Air Force, they raised the mission limit to 30 and then to 35. Okay, okay, okay. That's very interesting. To me, it's all, it's all interesting. So for your dad, when you were doing your research, and, and, you know, through the letters and everything, what was a typical day for him, you know, while he was on the flight line? Well, it, it varied a lot. Uh, one of the problems is that being stationed in England, the weather was usually pretty crummy. You know, it was overcast or rainy or foggy or snow. And so uh, there's a lot of days they couldn't fly um, mm -hmm. or they'd take off on a mission. And then they had to be aborted because there was the clouds over the target was too thick. So that, you know, that was really demoralizing because you, you went through all the mental anguish of, okay, I'm going on this mission. I might die. You get in your plane, you, you rev up the engines and then you, you take off, but then they call you back, but you, get, you don't get any credit for that mission. So you have all the mental angst that's going through you without completing the mission and get a credit for that mission. So that, that was really tough uh, on those on those air crews. And then some days, all of a sudden, you'd fly like several days in a row. So, mm -hmm. And it was amazing. It was it was so different from uh, other uh, 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 services in the in the U.S. military. Is that you'd go up for a mission, you'd be get, get flak and anti-aircraft fire, and you're being attacked and you know, you have buddies dying, you come back to England and you can get a pass going to England, like going to London, party, drink, you know, and take out girls and uh, kind of have a normal life for like a, a night or two and then act you're out, you know, not on another mission, not knowing if you'd be, you'd be killed on that mission or not. It, it was pretty incredible. That's crazy. You know what astounds me too? Like you talk about those letters that he sent back home. 
it surprised me that that the military allowed him to go into such details in those letters too, because it was you know their missions. Well, my dad was the the pilot, the first okay. pilot, and as such, he was the commander of the crew and the plane. Okay. So he he uh, screened the letters of all his crewmen. That makes sense. Okay. But no one screened his letters. <laughs> <laughs> so that is pretty incredible because most people that I talk to, you know, have letters from their their, their dad. They just say, "Well, everything's fine. You know, the weather was lousy today, and you know, very kind of noxious and." And, and not going into detail. My dad went into extreme detail on, on what was going on with him and his crew members. And like I said, in, in London, there's lots of excerpts from those letters that are in the book that make it very personal. There's also over 200 time period photographs in the book. So you can oh, cool. visualize everything you're reading about. Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, what was it like meeting the pilot that was credited with, with shooting him down? Absolutely incredible. You know, all my dad knew or all the U.S. military knew at the time that there was these two German fighters that attacked my dad's plane and shot him down. And that's all I, all I thought I'd ever know. Uh, but mm -hmm. during my research, one day my wife, Glenda, just casually said, well, why don't you try to find a German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? And I'm thinking, well, that's a stupid idea, ridiculous idea. She has no idea what she's talking about. She's so naive, but like a good husband. I did what you told me to do. And I went on uh, Google, you know, Google trying to find a Luftwaffe pilot. And a couple of forums came up. I, I joined the forums and I posted inquiries. I knew the day that my dad's plane was shot down, the time of day and the location. And in a week, two guys got back to me, one from England and one from uh, Belgium. And on that day, there were 12 B-17 shot down and the one shot down south of Chimay, Belgium, right at the French-Belgium border was shot down from Hans Berger. And that's when I found out that the gunners on my dad's plane actually shot Hans down at the same time. They shot each other down. So finding wow. him was like a, a thrill of a, of a lifetime. And uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, don't you hate this guy that shot down your dad's plane? But uh, just the opposite. I was so excited to find him. Uh, the, the World War II was the defining moment in my dad's life. Um, and at one point in history, Hans and my dad's life intersected. And Hans is a part of my dad's life, a part of his story. So I felt an affinity for him. And he was just a young guy at 20 years old, like most of the U.S. airmen, you know, you know, trying to do a job, fighting for right. his country, trying to stay alive. And he said it was too bad that they could had to be shooting at each other, but that was war. So I... I, I it's, it's just incredible that I got to meet him and uh, become friends and, and learn about his story. That is incredible. Now, when your dad was shot down, did the did the Air Force let you guys know that, that he'd been shot down, or did you guys find out later from him? Well, he was shot down on February 8th of 44, and uh, my mother received a telegram on, on February 23rd saying okay. he his plane had been shot down. He was missing in action. Okay. And he was missing in action for seven months. And my other sister, Nancy, was born while he was missing in action. So that was really tough on my mom because she had one-year-old Susan Ruth, who the plane was named after, you know, infant baby Nancy, and she didn't know if she had ever seen her husband. And then uh, after my dad bailed out, you know, he came down in some trees just right at the French Belgian border and his his parachute got hung up in the trees. He was dangling 20 feet off the ground and couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple of young uh, Belgian men, Henri Franken and Raymond Durvan, came to his rescue before the Germans got to him. Uh, this occurred early afternoon. So they helped him down from the, the tree. They told him to hide until nighttime because they thought it was too dangerous uh, to try to move him with these German patrols in the area looking for these guys that bailed out. So that night they came and got him, took him to the Durvan farmhouse. He stayed there one night because, again, they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that with those German patrols in the area. So the second night, a Belgian customs officer, customs officer Paul Tilcan, came and got him on a tandem bicycle and moved him to a, a safer location. 
And then after that, he was moved from place to place to place. How long he stayed in any location depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might spend one night at a house. He might spend six weeks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, and there were several times where he, he was almost discovered by the uh, German secret police, the Gestapo, and they're described uh, in, in the book. And finally, he just got tired of hiding. Um, I mean, it was very stressful, you know, hiding, not knowing the, the, the Gestapo uh, could do any time. And word came that uh, allies had landed at uh, Normandy on D-Day, June 6th. He decided to get back in the fight. Unlike most airmen, before he went into the Air Force, he was in the Army, the infantry year training. So he knew how to fight on the ground. So he decided to join the French resistance. Uh, the Mackie, there they were called, which was uh, the Mackie was made up of independent uh, small guerrilla groups located all over France. And their job was to harass the Germans. They would uh, sabotage railroad lines. They would disrupt communications. They'd assassinate German officers and act German convoys. They'd get their uh, instructions from the British over coded through coded messages on the BBC radio. And then they were supplied by the British through airdrops. And there's a number of encounters in the book that uh, his uh, group, there were about 20 of them led by, by a French lieutenant, had had with the Germans. Pretty dangerous. Yeah. And then uh, finally, uh, seven months after uh, he was shot down on September 2nd, 2nd of 1944, word came that there were U.S. troops in a nearby village of Trelon, France. He walked into the town square up to an army major, uh, identified himself, they interrogated him, and then uh, he got a, a ride on a, a convoy that was going to Paris, and then he got a transport back to England where he sent a telegram to my mother, you know, seven months later saying, I'm fit as a fiddle and the bank the money, honey, because he had all that back pay uh, from wow. being uh, missing in action for seven months. Uh, it's an amazing story. The book's just not about my dad, though. It's about right. what happened to each member of the crew and all the Belgian people that risked their lives to help them. So talk about that a little bit. You know, like you say, it's not all about your dad. What happened to the rest of the crew that managed to get out? Well, as I mentioned, uh, B-17 had a 10-man crew. Two died in the plane. Mm-hmm. The other eight bailed out. Uh, three of them became prisoners of war. Two of them were so severely injured that they were repatriated back to the United States before the war ended. And then uh, the third, he stayed in a, as a POW the entire war. And he was on the infamous Black March, 86-day march, uh, as described in the book. And then three of my dad's crew members uh, evaded capture for two months, but they were betrayed by Belgium collabor- collaborators and the uh, Nazis captured them and five other downed airmen that they were hiding with, interrogated him, and shot all five. Wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of tragedy in the book, but there's, because of the five who died, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, triumph or, uh, as well for the five who made it. Unfortunately, my dad was one of the five or else I would not be here. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was born two years after them. Okay. Were you able to, I don't know if you were able to, were you able to talk with the people or find out who hit him in Belgium or, or not? Uh, yes. Uh, my dad uh, kept in contact with uh, his Belgium, they were called helpers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like most World War II veterans, he didn't talk a lot about the war until 1989. Uh, memorial was erected in little village of Mackinois, Belgium, just north of the French border. My dad and the other three crew members that were still living at the time went over for the dedication and my, there my dad was reunited with all these Belgian people that helped him, you know, revisited these houses and farms he was hidden in. And that brought it all back and he started talking about it after that. And then my first trip to Belgium, I've been to Belgium six times. I was going to ask you. Uh, the first one was in 1994 with my parents. So I got to go around and see these places firsthand with my father. And I was able to meet one of his Belgian helpers, uh, Paul Telkan's wife, Nellie Telkan, 
who was the only his holy helper that was still living or healthy enough at the time to be involved in the ceremonies. So that was that was pretty filling. And that's what became personal for me because there I was, saw everything firsthand and could right. really identify it. It just wasn't stories being told, but I, you know, all these places firsthand where the history took place. Right. Because see, that's something that's one of my goals too, is I want to go to Kitty Hawk and walk the beach and then you know and then look through his eyes and see it. That's one thing that I would like to do, you know, later on in my life. Because that would be an incredible experience. Yeah, when, you, you go ahead. Well, yeah, when you when you're there and see where these places took place, where those men were murdered, well, uh, when my dad was hidden, where the plane came down, uh, or you know, I've been to Normandy and the D-Day beaches, and to see where all that took place, and the American cemeteries. I've been to five American cemeteries in Europe, which you know the. The crosses just go on endlessly. It's a, it's a very very moving experience. Yeah, you know, the people you know in, in the United States, since we weren't you know attacked or occupied, it's hard for people to understand uh, what those European countries went through. And, and even today, uh, the people in Belgium and the Netherlands and other occupied countries are so grateful and so thankful for the Americans and their allies coming to their rescue because they suffered for four years under Nazi oppression and Nazi occupation and lost all their freedoms. You know, here in the United U.S., especially younger generations, just take for granted that, you know, these are just, you have them and you're never going to lose them. But, yeah. you, know, you know, as they say, and people need to realize, you know, freedom is not free. No, it's not. So what, what was your dad, I mean, did, did your dad have any kind of PTSD or anything like that at, after the war? Well, not that I experienced. Um, I have been told by uh, other, my aunts and uncles, that he did suffer it, you know, coming back. Uh, my mother told me the story of one time, you know, he had a nightmare and he was choking her, you know, as they were sleeping in bed. You know, he was having some nightmare. But uh, I, I don't know how long that lasted, but it, it didn't last, you know, didn't go on forever. Uh, you know, after I was born, you know, I, I never knew my dad to ever suffer any uh, uh, PTSD, PTSD, but uh, he did when he first came back. Interesting, interesting. So when you started talking to people about this, um, what was the first thing that, that kind of hit you, you know, about the reality of it? Oh, a couple things. It was it was just the sacrifice those guys did. Again, people have to understand that back then the United States was a completely different place. Uh, today, most of the people live in cities. Back mm -hmm. then, you know, that lived in the country. The U.S. was a very very rural society back then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of these guys had never even been out of their home county. You know, let alone traveled any place. There was no internet, no TV. There's no social media. The only thing they learned about the world was in a magazine or in a newspaper article. A lot of these guys, you know, they had just graduated from high school, never been away from uh, their home, never been away from their mother. All of a sudden, they're halfway around the world fighting a war. And they could do anything they wanted to. All of a sudden, they could smoke if they wanted to. They could drink if they wanted to. They could chase women if they wanted to. You know, it, it was an exciting time for these guys, without a doubt. And my my dad said that. It, you know, it was it was thrilling um, because these guys, being so young, like in any war, they think, well, it's not. I'm not going to be killed. It's going to be the other guy. Right. But they then they see their buddies getting killed, and that brings it, you know, more personal. So it, 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 it was an, the sacrifice they made. Uh, incredible now that i do a lot of speaking i i don't do as much speaking as i'd like to the high school and things like that but when i go into these classrooms and i look at these you know 18 17 19 year old uh high school kids and think you could be in a plane now going to fighting a war and never come back home yeah but today's youth are a lot more you know uh, exposed to the world they're a lot 
for lack of a better word, worldly. They know what's going on. They're not as isolated as those guys back then. It, it's, and that's why I do what I do to keep the memory alive and uh, absolutely try to educate the public. Absolutely. Another question about your dad. Um, obviously, he was a pilot. Did he did he enlist and then go through the courses, or how how did that work? Well, uh, as a result of the first peacetime draft in U.S. history in the okay. fall of 1940, implemented by uh, President Franklin Roosevelt. My dad, uh, you know, enlisted for the draft and then went into the army in the, in the in April of 1941, and that's how I got into the uh, infantry in the army. And then he got married, and he thought, well, I really can't support my new bride and my baby on the way on a private's pay in the army, and that's mm -hmm. why he volunteered for the air force to make more money, especially if he could make it through pilot training and become an officer. That was his motivation to go into the Air Force to support his family. Okay, that makes sense. So I was wondering how that how that worked at that point. What do you see? Um, I hate to say it this way, like like you talk about the kids of today. You know, they just don't realize the the, the impact and, and the emotion of what it was back then. You know, during the war. What do you see when you compare? You know, people from then to this to now well it you know it was just such a different time um you know they they're referred to as the greatest generation like uh, wholeheartedly believe that i mean they went through the depression mm -hmm. um i mean they were raised on hard work um and discipline and god-fearing and appreciating uh, their country uh, because nothing came easy back then. Right. And as future generations, you know, whether it's, you know, my generation, the baby boomers or, or you know, every generation further, it, it becomes a little bit easier because, you know, your parents always want you to have a better life and mm -hmm. have it easier. And, you know, World War II ended 75 years ago. So it's a fading in people's memory. Right. And so it, it's just difficult to communicate and, and, and teach uh, younger generations, you know, what it was like back then and the sacrifice that those people, people made uh, to preserve the, the freedoms that we enjoy today. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, most people just take them for granted. You know, you, you can say anything you want, do whatever you want, you know, uh, we become more service-oriented society, you know, hard work, it, you know. It, the, back then, as I mentioned, it's a rural economy, and, you know, these kids, young, they, they woke up, you know, before sunlight, before dawn, working on the farm, you know, tilling the soil. It, it, it was just so different back then. And we become softer, uh, you know, and that's, that's, just, that's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, if it's hard to communicate to the younger generations of what what happened back then, mm -hmm. and so it's, but I try, and right. uh, it's always uh, gratifying when I go to these different book signings that you know young kids are interested in World War II and, and want to want to learn about history. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of history is, I don't want to get political on this, but, you know, trying to be rewritten today or forgotten or changed. And, and, I, and I mean, if, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. I mean, that's an expression. It's just, it's not meaningless. It, 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 mm -hmm. it, it came into being for, for a reason. You have to know where you came from. You just can't gloss over it, you know, even though there were bad parts. And right. things that maybe shouldn't have happened or bad things happen, that's a part of history and you have to learn from it. Absolutely. Now, after you did all this research on this book, you must have had piles and piles of stuff, you know, to put together. How, how did you do that? Did you have help doing it? Or did, like you say, you hadn't written a book or anything like that in your life. So how, how did you do, it, do that once you compiled it? Well, 
I had so much information and uh, I decided to use my dad's letters uh, as a reference and just kind of do a chronological uh, timeline through, uh, you know, at the beginning of the book, I talked just a little bit about, you know, his growing up and then getting married and then going to the service, then pilot training. uh, And then, you know, him and his crew going over to Europe uh, to England and then flying combat missions and what it was like in England and London at the time. The first half of the book kind of builds up the day that they were shot down and the second and a half is all about what happened afterwards on the ground. My biggest ch- challenge was just organizing all the material to put it in a logical you know, sequence that would flow so the reader you know, could, could follow. Uh, and then I added just a, a lot of information and anecdotes about and surrounding the war, uh, the 8th Air Force, the air war over Europe, uh, and put it in context and give it background. And th- there's a ton of details in the book. Because anytime I, I came across something, I go, well, I'm not really sure what that was. And I'm thinking, well, the readers might be interested in knowing what that means. Like my, my wife said, the term GI, you know, where did GI come from? And so I explained that in the book where GI came from and all these little weird anecdotes that they were curious to me. And I thought, well, that might be curious to the reader as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of two books in one. One's the story of my dad and his crew that really reads like a novel because it's mm-hmm. so incredible, even though it's all based on firsthand testimony. And then the other part of the book is what I added. It's more of a, a, a history of what was going on at the time, what was going on during the war, and uh, all these little, little anecdotes. So it was, a, it was a labor of love. I, I, I loved doing it, and it, it changed my life, and it, it started a new career for me. And although this awesome. year I'm not, I'm not traveling at all because of COVID, right. uh, hopefully uh, you know, maybe next year that will start up again. Did he tell stories about it? I mean, like when you guys were, you know, had get-togethers or around the dinner table? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the problem is when you're small, yeah. you know, you're, you're interested in, you know, you're not, you know, you're just playing with your toys. and You know, that's, you really don't pay attention. Like he got together with his crew members that uh, survived the war. They'd come over for dinner. But, you know, I, I didn't care. You know, they'd, tell, they'd call me out, Steve, come meet, you know, Mr. Mu- Mr. and Mrs. Musial or, or so-and-so. And I just go, okay, fine, thank you. And I just wanted to get back to my room and play with my toys and watch cartoons or whatever. So you don't appreciate it. You know, and then you get older, you're going to college, you know, and then you start a family and you have kids and you're working. And, and so it, it's the same for everybody. You know, most people do that. And then all of a sudden, you when you finally reach a point where you go, oh, gosh, you know, that was pretty significant. I should ask, then most times it's too late. Yeah, you can can kick yourself for not having a recorder, you know. Yeah, and and, and I I meet so many people who tell me the same story. Again, I was so fortunate, so blessed uh, to know so much and learn so much uh, before my dad passed away. It was too bad that I wasn't able to write the book when he was still living, because that would have been pretty incredible. And also if he could have met Hans Berger, we could have met, met each other, but that you know, that, so- that, that's, that's life. Yeah, that's, yeah, this, this life is sad. It's just too bad. Um, did you find that the people you met were very open to talk to you, you know, to, to give you the information that, that you were looking for? Oh yeah, yeah. That 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 wasn't a problem at all. And then by the time that I was writing the book, all the military uh, documents have been declassified, like bomb group mm-hmm. diaries and mission reports and uh, war crimes reports. So I had all that information too to kind of fill in blanks in the book. Um, oh. And it, you know, like I couldn't have done it without the internet. You know, years ago, right. I, uh, there's it would have been impossible. That would have but, been crazy trying to find that. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> you, you just you just couldn't have done it. You just couldn't have done it. I agree. Did he ever do any um, after the war? Did he ever do any flying at all? No. Um, he uh, well, when he got back to England uh, after he met up with the U.S. armies in in, in France, uh, he was sent back 
home to the States to become a B-17 instructor. The uh, Air Force had a rule at the time that if you were shot down over occupied territory and held by the underground, that you couldn't fly combat again because they were worried if you were shot down a second time, captured by the Germans and tortured, mm -hmm. that you'd give up the identity of the people that helped you. So he was sent back to the States and became a flight instructor, a B-17 flight instructor in Florida and Ohio uh, for war uh, until the war ended. Oh, cool. But he didn't fly uh, again. And uh, so I wasn't exposed to aviation at all growing up. I'm not a pilot. I got to ask all the time if I'm a pilot because I'm around, around, you know, these air shows. All the time. Right. What did he do for a living? Oh, he did a lot of stuff. Uh, after uh, he got he was an air traffic controller for a little while after he was a B-17 flight instructor. And then he, uh, I don't know what inspired him to do this, but he uh, he bought a restaurant in Pasadena and he was uh, ran that for 10 years. It was called Snyder's. Uh, and he became the chef because the most, most chefs were so unreliable. He decided he was going to become the chef. So my dad was a great cook. And he did that for 10 years, and then it was just too hard for him, you know, standing on his feet all day, you know, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then he went into a, a bunch of different sales uh, things that most of them didn't go anywhere. And then finally, he got into uh, redemption stamp business. Uh, probably most people watching your podcast don't even know what that is. But back in the, back in the 60s, uh, and in early 70s, they had redemption stamps. So if you went to the grocery store, a gas station, you'd, you'd get these redemption stamps depending on how much you bought. And then you'd paste them in a book and then you could redeem the, the books for merchandise, whether it's a washer and dryer or a vacuum cleaner. And so he uh, got involved with a Acro stamp machine company that made the dispensers dialed like a telephone stamps. Mm -hmm. would and that's uh, what he retired from. Interesting, very yeah. interesting. When you go out to uh, to, lect to to lecture and talk, or even to these air shows, what's the most frequent question you get from people? Oh, that's uh, that's a good question. Well, one is about you know the the Luftwaffe pilot. Um, you know how how I could be friends with him. Uh, the other probably is uh, what my dad did after the war. Uh, if you flew more combat missions, uh, you know, fairly basic. It's interesting because some of the presentations, there's no questions. But the other presentations, there's like a multitude of questions. It all depends on the on the on the on the audience. But so I, I but I enjoy doing it. Oh, great! Absolutely. So where did you get like uh, like I know you like obviously you had to go to the military to get the you know to get some some of that information that, that was declassified. How did you uh, get the photos? Was that through the military as well? Well, uh, some of the photos, but uh, an amazing number of the photos were taken. Whoop! We froze up. Bummer. Well, that's unfortunate. I don't know if it's my end or his end, but Steve has frozen up on me. So we got to freeze. Let's see if he comes back online in a second here. Anyway, um, this has been a great interview with Steve. I'm fascinated by the topic, and uh, I'm so glad he came on. We've been trying to coordinate this for like a month. And I have to make a quick correction because in the beginning of this, I said he was a, uh, an aviator. He was that, I mean, his father was an aviator. His father was not an aviator. His father was a pilot in the uh, Army Air Force. So uh, I'm going to make that correction right now while I have a second. And, okay, and we lost Steve. He'll probably come back in. So, um, But I just want to let everybody know we'll be back next week with another great show, uh, Back to Paranormal Topic. I'm going to try and vary these things maybe every other week, do a, do a spotlight on, on somebody that's done great things. Um, so hopefully that's how it's going to work. But, uh, in the meantime, like I said, we might, we might go to two shows a night, uh, a week. I'm tired. Sorry. We might go to two shows a week and, uh, 
do it that way. So it depends on, on how it all flows. But I'm enjoying doing these. I don't know if you're enjoying listening, but I'm enjoying doing these. I love doing this. I like talking different topics. You know, paranormal is wonderful, and uh, I've been doing it for a long time. But I also like having different topics with, with people, especially guys, people like Steve. Um, let me see if I can text him. I'm going to see. Got my, got my phone for my darling. Let's see. I'm going to go ahead and text him. We lost him. At least this time, I mean, on my end, my, my internet held up tonight for once, so um, I'm real happy about that. But again, um, you can check us out at www.californiahaunts.org. And like I said, I want to get my Sunday or my Saturday or Sunday show going again because we do have a lot of case files, and I do want to tell stories from those cases, you know, because we do have a lot of interesting ghost hunt stories to tell. Um, if I don't hear from Steve, we're just going to go ahead and close this thing off early tonight. See what he says. He just texted back. He says it's his end. It's okay. See, it's cool. I'm I'm a patient hostess. But anyway, um, we just did a fascinating case in a house in uh, excuse me, give me a second. We just did a fascinating case in a house in Carmichael, and I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit this this weekend, and hopefully, hopefully, I can get to that. And we're gonna have, you know, like I said, we're gonna kind of change it up with the guests and everything so uh be looking for that and uh again we're going to be changing studios as well we're going to be in the smaller studio probably starting mid-november we're going to be switching out of the studio uh because i have some video stuff that i need to shoot in this in this particular studio so i have to shift everything out otherwise because all the radio stuff's in here and all that so um I'm really, so I'm, I'm really going to be i keep saying looking forward but i am there's a lot of looking forward to there's a lot to look forward to with California Haunts. I started my blog up again. If you want to check that out, check uh, Facebook. I'll go ahead and repost it tonight. Uh, I'm doing part one. Part one of two is on there. I talk about kind of like with what uh, Bishop Long and I were talking about, about different groups going into houses and how you know, a lot of the groups that are going out are inexperienced. And I talk about that and I, and I, and I give groups tips, you know, people tips for how to tight, tighten up their ship as far as their, as far as their teams go. Just tips. I'm not telling people how to run their how to run their team. I'm just doing tips, and um, uh, I think it's going to be very helpful and informative. And, and for the people that don't do ghost hunting, I think it'll be informative for them too. So um, be on the lookout for that. That, that. that got released last night, by the way. But I'll go ahead and re-release the first part, and I'll probably start working on the second part tonight and uh, get that out. But um, it's been great. It's, it's been a great experience. I, you know, and tonight's been a great experience. Like I said, everything worked. My, my internet worked. Uh, the California Haunts team is 35 strong. We're located up and down the state of California, Nevada, Washington, and parts of Hawaii, which is kind of cool. Really kind of cool. Aloha. And uh, we can go anywhere in the state of California to help people because that's what we do. We don't charge for our services, but we do help people. If you like the show, feel free to share it with with some with other people you know. If you didn't like the show, share it anywhere with people you hate. Why not? Revenge is sweet. Um, and like I and as you can see by the ticker in the bottom, um, help us bring you know more more exciting guests on here. You can tell I'm just really tired of it. More exciting guests on here, and we're just looking for donations to keep this keep the show going. It's kind of like PBS when they do their shows. That's what I'm doing. I'm asking for donations to do the show. And the more donations I get, the better equipment I can get, the better you know, I can improve my internet and uh, get you guys better get you know get you guys better and better guests and stuff. Okay, so uh, go ahead and do that and uh, help us out a little bit. I hate begging. I hate begging. But again, uh, we're the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, located based out of Sacramento, California, and. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing other shows with you guys. I really am. And uh, and for you guys, and Steve's back. So we're back, Source fans. Hey, how you doing? Sorry about that. Did He's you get back. my message about where yeah, I, I am? Yeah, I did. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Kind of, fits, kind of fits into your normal show. Yes, it does. It does fit <laughs> into my normal show. I've had weird things happen, even doing this show. I mean, the past couple of weeks, I've had... 
some some real deep what I call deep paranormal guests on, and I've had nothing but audio issues. So I don't know if it's if it's if it's just my internet or if it's just the guests. You know what I mean? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have on or something. Some power that be doesn't want the audio working. I don't know. You know. So we got about five minutes left. Tell tell us where we can get where we can get this book, and when what you have coming up. Okay. Um, well, most people get the book on Amazon. Okay. But it's available almost you know anywhere, Barnes and Noble. If anyone wants a, uh, a signed hard uh, back copy, they can go to my website, which is Steve Snyder Author.com. That's Snyder S N Y D E R Steve Snyder Author.com. And if uh, my website has a wealth of information, it's just not about my book. If anyone wants to learn more about the air war over Europe, the Eighth Air Force, there's veterans interviews archival uh, uh, footage, uh, TV shows that uh, about uh, the air war, 12 o'clock high. There, there's a ton of information on my website. Awesome, and awesome. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, putting that together. I did make a documentary short uh, about my book. It's a, I've entered into a number of uh, film festivals and uh, so that's kind of the, the latest thing that I was working on uh, now because of COVID and not being able to travel or go anywhere. You know, I, I've done quite a few interviews, either podcasts or, or radio mm -hmm. interviews. So that's uh, what I'm doing doing now. Cool. Cool, cool, so, cool. You know, they, they, these are fun. You've, you've yeah. done a fantastic job, by the way. You're a great interviewer. You Thank ask you. wonderful questions. Thank you. You really Thank engage you so your 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 guest. It's good to hear. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And the title of your book for people that don't know it. Okay. It's called Shot Down: The True Story of Pilot Howard Snyder and the Crew of the B17 Susan Ruth. You know what? You're a great guest. You have all the answers and I like that. That was really cool. <laughs> I had a ball and it was very fascinating. In fact, you make me want to, I can't wait till the museums and stuff open up because I want to get back over the air, over the air museums because I love looking at all the planes and, you know, and going through them and stuff. So that's something, my dad was, was a plane nut. So we would go down to the airport every Sunday, you know, and then hang out and look at all the airplanes and he would talk about them and stuff. And then he'd have all these books on the B-17s, the B-29s and, and all this. So my, my dad was, I learned all about them. So, I mean, this was, Tremendous for me to have you on. What airport did you go to? Sacramento, Sacramento International over here. Okay, yeah, because you know, the, the company I, I worked for, Vision Service Plan, is based in Rancho Cordova. There you go. So I got up to Sacramento a lot. In fact, I was just up there a couple weekends ago because my youngest son, Clayton, got married in Granite Bay. Awesome. Well, it was really fun, too, because my dad had been in a after after he got out of the war, you know, he had worked for Boeing, so it was kind of cool because you know that's how he knew about the airplanes, you know, so much about the airplanes and stuff. So talking with you has been absolutely fabulous tonight, and I was really excited to have you on. I'm glad you came on, and I would love to have you on again on a later date because I mean th this was a blast. That's great. Usually uh, every year, which would have been a, a couple weekends ago, I always come up to Sacramento to. Uh, Mather Air Force Base for the California there you go. Air uh, Museum. Capital Air Show. Yeah, I love it. I love I, it. I usually show. go up there to sign copies of that. That's a great air show, the California Capital. That is show. a great air show. I love it. Just absolutely yeah. love it. I try to well, get thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm sorry absolutely. my internet went out for uh, a little bit. That's okay. I don't have the best internet either sometimes. So <laughs> that's what I mean. That's why I was wondering if it was my end or what, because like I said, I've been having trouble the last couple of times I do the show. So this was great. And I appreciate, like I said, I would like to have you on in the future. Maybe when you come into Sacramento or something, we, we could go live. That would be kind oh, of cool. cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. We could do a live show. So anyway, thank great. you. Thank you so much. And well, I thank appreciate you. it. And you have a good week, rest of the week, sir. Okay. You take care and stay safe. All right. You too. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, that was a great, well, I felt like a great show. Um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot more than I knew from before. I did a lot of re you know, reading up on that, on the particular topic of, of, of the bombers over World War II and whatnot. In World War II. God, my lips don't want to work right today. 
But anyway, uh, I will see you guys hopefully on Saturday, assuming we don't get a case coming in, or possibly Sunday, you know, assuming something doesn't come in and take, take up my time. But uh, I, I hope to see you guys so we can uh, do some more uh, research from the California Haunts case files. Okay, so I'll talk to you later. If not, we will see you next Wednesday with another another great guest. See you later.